we began just for our, our season this year. We, we're just working with a, a simple theme, if you will. And the simple theme is simply our time. It is our time as we reflect upon the magnificence of this truth that, uh, that defines this season for us. And it's our time to enjoy and to have a sense of the blessedness and the goodness that God has for us. It's our time. As believers, we claim this. And we, we claim it and we proclaim it. So what we've done so far with, the, with our thoughts on this theme of our time is, first of all, it's our time to speak. It's our time to speak without embarrassment, without shame, without any sense of reservation. It's our time to speak about who the magnificence of Jesus Christ is and, and, and how wonderful it is as we, as we retell the story and we share the story of, of the babe born and laid in a manger. It's our time to speak. This is historical fact. This is not some fable that has been made up. This is not some fancy idea that we've had that somebody else has a different fancy ideas and they may poo-poo ours. No, no, we're not embarrassed because it is historical fact, the arrival of Jesus Christ. And based upon that historical reality, we speak and we proclaim him to all who will listen. Last week... A little tougher in dealing with the topic, and as we said, it's our time also to forgive. It's our time to forgive this season. Because God sent Jesus Christ into the world, not just so we can have Christmas trees and give gifts to one another. He sent Christ into the world that one day his death on our behalf. You know, somebody has observed that death for all of us, death denies us our purpose in life. Death robs us of our direction and our meaning and the significance of our lives. It puts an end to it. But in Christ's case, death was the fulfillment of his life. It was the purpose for which he came, that he might hang on a cross ultimately and be our sin bearer, that he might indeed be the one who is the substitution for, for us, that the penalty of sin, we don't have to bear it, that he has already And God forgives us, blots out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, took it out of of the way, nailing it to his cross, we read last week. We also read that as we have been forgiven, we are to forgive. As God has been generous with us in offering forgiveness to us, we are to pass that along freely, openly. It doesn't mean that those who have wounded us now become our best friends. It doesn't mean that we return into toxic relationships that will eat us alive if we have escaped from them. It simply means that the bitterness in our hearts that we hold towards these people, we hold it just like we held that IOU as we came to the cross at the Lord's table. IOU, Lord, I'm indebted to you because of my sin. And by the cross, I'm thankful that I can just leave it there and I can be delivered of that. And then we consider to you owe me the people who have wounded us, and the woundings are real, friends. And we said, but I'm not going to hold on to this one either. I'm bringing it to the cross also, Lord. And I'm laying it there, and I'm no longer going to cling to what I believe somebody owes me. And I'm going to cling to the bitterness and the wrath of that. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to let it grind in my spirit for years to come. Nope, I'm bringing it there, and I'm leaving it there. Because, Lord, you died for that wounding 
and that offense that they gave also. And so we've seen it's our time to speak. It's our time to forgive. And what I would just like us to take a few minutes to consider this morning, friends, is very simply, it's our time to love. This is something we grasp readily with the coming of Christmas and the story of the birth of Christ. The birth of Christ, if you like to fill in your notes, the birth of Christ is the great expression of God's love. Now, if you spent your years growing up in Sunday school, you know this. Perhaps the best-known Bible verse in the world. You see it in the end zones at football games. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The very source, the fountainhead, if you will, of motivation that brings this moment that we're going to celebrate this afternoon, that we're celebrating all month, the very source of it is the love of God. Unbelievable. In the Old Testament, they had a word for love. It's chesed. And it refers to God's loyal love. It's used hundreds of times for God and his love for Israel, his love for his people, that it is never-ending. And that's what God has done for us, is he has poured out love in the person of his son. Agape is a New Testament word. Agape. And it's a love that is oriented towards the other. It's the love that says, what I'm doing out of love is for your benefit, for your good. It's a sacrificial, self-giving love. The birth of Jesus Christ, a magnificent expression of God's love. And if we're going to be imitators of God, which the Scriptures calls us to do, would it not call us to be imitators of love? What did Jesus say as he, as, and that last night with his disciples? He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love. That's right. Love for one another. How are we any different? How are we any different than a world we see in darkness and turmoil if the way we live our lives is to be in constant tension and anger and bitterness towards one another? How does the world see anything different? They can get that anywhere else they go. But it seems to me when they come to the church, they ought to see something different. They ought to see something different. The world gets this. Do you know that? Do you ever think about it? I don't care how tacky the movies are and the storylines that you get a lot of them at Christmas time. I don't care how secular they are. The world catches on to the fact that somehow this one who came taught us to love. And sometimes they say things about it's what the meaning of Christmas. I'm like, you are so far off from the meaning of Christmas. But you picked up on this particular concept of love. There's something there that you got of it. You don't understand at all that he was going to become our substitute. That's not even a part of your discussion. You don't understand that he's Emmanuel, God with us. But you picked up on the love issue. And they all include that. And then we're all warm and fuzzy at the end because we know This is the message we need, don't we? 
little bit back, I caught just a part of an old movie, uh, uh, Home Alone. Totally secular. Totally nonsense. Yeah, Robbie loves it. Okay, thanks, Robbie. All right, the rest were looking at me with a glare like you watched what? Okay. I can't believe you said that. But there's a scary older character in the movie. Okay, and, and the little boy, okay, who's home alone, he's always afraid of this character till they meet where in church. And in church, he tells the boy, everybody's welcome here. But that man went on to speak about the breakdown as he's alone at Christmas time, the breakdown between himself and his son, I believe it was. There's this breakdown that has festered for years. It's gone on. See, they're touching on that love issue and that there needs to be a healing and you get that that pleasant moment at the end and you see it and you're like, oh, it's wonderful, it's Christmas. The world gets this, friends. The world gets it. We need to be getting it at a much deeper level than what the world gets because it is God's great expression and that's wonderful and that is good. And we know we need it. Which leads us to our second thing, is that the birth of Christ is the solution to man's great need. Why do we think the world gets it? Because they're crying out for it. Because everybody can look around and see a world and say, when will enough be enough? Now, we know there's not going to be an end of war until Jesus Christ comes and brings the end in a thousand-year reign where there will be peace on the earth. We know it's not going to happen, but it doesn't mean that the world doesn't long for it as they reject the only hope of it. We can, they can see that there's just total nonsense that happens and breakdown that happens. And love is ultimately going to be the only thing to solve it. You don't have to be a Christian to understand that breakdowns within families are not fun and they're not good and there's something, there's something not right about that. You don't have to be a Christian to understand that while millions of children are starving, many of us have so much. And sometimes we're selfish about what we have. There's something not right in that. And that's why those gifts go out that Karen Lee has led us in for however many years now with Operation Christmas Child to sense a little love out to some kids who have nothing. And we go, yeah, we're willing to do that because we know they need this message and they, they long for it. You don't have to be a Christian to understand this ugly, ugly thing called human trafficking and whether people are trafficked to become slaves, whether they're trafficked to be forced into a sex industry. And, uh, and we've, been, we've had it reported by those who come to us and speak to us. There's a, it's a small percentage, but I don't care if it's one person, those who are trafficked for organs. Can you fathom that, my friend? Can I fathom? I cannot fathom that. You don't have to be a Christian to look at that and go, something is wrong with this world. Is there a solution out there anyways? Anywhere, and yes, it's here. 
It's in the love of God that if it, we will allow it to transform our lives, we can begin to impact those around us. But it's the only hope of the world. Well, why isn't it just out there flooding away? Well, I think we do a few things. Although the birth of Christ is the great expression of God's love and the birth of Christ is the solution to man's great need, we find it so easy to miss how we get this across. First of all, here just and you just think with me, would you? We approach love conditionally all too often, don't we? We approach love conditionally. I will love you if. If you're loving to me, then I'll be loving towards you. If you as my child do what I want you to do, then mommy or daddy will treat you love, with love and kindness. But if you don't, watch out. Or mom and dad, if you don't, if you don't give me the, what I want, then I'm going to be unloving towards you. I will be rude. I will be manipulative. I will go against your word. I will run out of the house when you don't want me out in the middle of the night. But guess what? My response to you, because you haven't loved me, mom or dad, is I, I don't see you as loving me, is, is I'm not going to be loving towards you. And I'm going to respond. I'm going to respond with a, a sense of uh, an unloving attitude. How many places are there where we can just point it out time and time and time again that what we're dealing with is a conditional kind of love? But that is not how God deals with us. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Do you have that up there for us, Preston? When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. Notice this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is that not a magnificent truth? Is that not the truth that each one of us needs? Is it not the thing that lifts us up when we finally come to understand it? All too often, even within the church, we have communicated a gospel that says, hey, you can have eternal life. Straighten up, then come to church and we'll tell you about it. That's not how God's working. Jesus Christ went to the cross while we were still sinners, while we still were in rebellion to him, while we still shook our fists at the heavens. Well, we still said, God, I don't want any part of you in my life. He still sent his son. That he might go to the cross on our behalf. He never said to us, clean up your act. Straighten everything up in your life. And then maybe I'll take some time with you. He said, I'm going to send my son who will bear the burden of your sin. And if you will receive that gift, I then am going to give you the Holy Spirit who will begin to transform your life and make you whole again because I know you can't do it on your own. And we know that. If we've been walking with Jesus Christ for some time, we've all come to experience that, haven't we, people? I can't do it on my own. How foolish was I ever to think I was going to be good enough, I was going to pull this thing off, I was even going to be a little better than my neighbor who doesn't even claim to be a Christian. After a while, we begin to go, you know what? I am as broken as anybody else who walks the face of this earth. And all I have for any hope 
is that God loved me in Jesus Christ. He sent him to die for me, and he is transforming my life. And he didn't say, straighten up first and then come to me. He said, come to me. Come to me, wherever you're at. Come. And if you will receive what I have for you, I will do a transforming work in your life. God's solution is not conditional, friends. It is not conditional. That's where we make the mistake. We see this thing, oh, this magnificent thing of love, and it's, it's that, that thing will help man. Then why are we not doing a better job with it? Because one thing, too often, we get caught up in making love conditional. That's one. I just want to throw out one other thought. We reject love for power. We decide that power is the way to go. Power is what's going to allow me to get my way in this world. I heard a guy years ago, I'm, I've, I've, I don't know if I've ever said this publicly, but I find myself a little leery to say it. Some guy with a doctorate of something, probably from some big, well-known school, he was uh, the head of a, uh, the, the senior pastor of a large, I believe it was a Presbyterian church down in the cities, and I went into it. I, just so, I was just so intrigued by I was there for meetings one weekend uh, that were uh, one week. I was so intrigued by the church as I just saw it during the week. I went back to it for services on Sunday. And uh, I wanted to hear the man, partly because of the pipe organ. That's really what I wanted to hear. But then I'm listening to this guy preach, some guy with doctor in front of his name, you know. And um, I'll never forget what he said. He said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. I've thought on that for many years. I don't buy it. I'm leery to say that because this guy has a doctorate, and who am I to argue with him, right? I think the opposite of love is power. When we use our power to get our way, when we use our power, our position, our influence to get done what we want done for our sakes... Power. God's solution is not based on power, is it? Turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. Again, I expect that it will come up. Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Understand the first verse. We're being exhorted to something here, friends. We're being exhorted to think like this. Let this be our thinking. Are you with me? Okay, here's how we're going to imitate Christ. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Do we even begin to comprehend how Christ humiliated, the self-humiliation that he went through when he was born in that manger? Do we begin to think about that? We understand from the study that we've done in this last year about the triune God that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, is God. He is fully God as the second person of the Trinity. Scripture clearly portrays him in that way. And being fully God and having all 
of the attributes of God and all of the rights and prerogatives of God that he might be adored, that he might be worshipped, that he might be obeyed. The angels in glory from eternity, well, from their creation, not from eternity past, but from their creation, they worshipped him. And as an act of love, he divested himself completely of his power to rule. Think, think about that. His, his power, even, I don't understand how this works. It's something we'll all ask him about in trying to understand the incarnation. What did he know in the womb? What did he know lying in the manger? Don't understand that. Scripture teaches it, so I'm with it. But look what he divested himself of. To be born of a peasant teenage girl who, under the influence of Rome, had to travel a long distance just to be born in Bethlehem so the census could be fulfilled. Now, we understand sovereignly that was God who did that, clearly. But that girl was under a political system so that when the baby was born, eventually they had to run to flee Herod. Okay? The one who's the creator. Colossians describes him as the creator of the universe. The creator of the universe has to run from this one Herod who's on a power trip and doesn't want to be displaced by this king of the Jews. Can you think of any? I can't think of anybody else who ever had so much power that they could, even if they gave it all up, anybody who had the most power we've ever known in the world, I should say, if they gave it all up, doesn't begin to compare what Jesus Christ gave up. But somehow we buy into this thing that says, guess what? In order to keep things functioning the way they're supposed to, I got to make sure I maintain my power, I got to have my influence. And so if it means running roughshod over people, that's fine. Because i got the power and I can do that. Isn't that ultimately, when we think about this ugly, ugly, hateful, godless thing called human trafficking, isn't that ultimately a power play? Or a guy says, guess what? I have enough money that I can hire people to steal this young girl or this young boy. Or I can convince parents that they're going to go and they're going to go to a good place to work and get educated and I can lie to them. But I got enough power and influence so that I can use them and abuse them for my gaining more power and influence. Isn't that ultimately a power play? And we look at that, we say, that is ugly. I can't believe it. Who would do that? We do. We do, my friends. We do. When we're fighting with our spouse and we set our feet and say, I will have my way. We do when we demand that whatever influence we can bear, we don't care who it hurts and we don't care the cost. We're going to have our way. You know, there's one thing within the context of the church, and we're going to be wrapping up now. There's one thing within the context of the church I always get amused at. Now, we haven't heard this here in quite some time, and I praise God for that. That's not a proud statement. We will hear it again at some point. But when people have differences within the context of the church, I love when somebody within the context of the church says, I have a right to this. And I go, what? As followers of Jesus Christ... Why are we claiming a right 
to anything. Why do we get all fired up about our rights within the context of the church when we've been called to imitate Christ who divested himself of his rights? Where, where do we get off thinking that we ought to have our rights? But we do. God graciously points it out to us and tries to remind us that the way of power is not the way of life. That he's called us to love and that love is to imitate what Christ has done. He's called us to serve, to yield up our power and that service and yielding up of our power is to imitate what Christ has done. Then, all men will know that we are his disciples. Father, thank you for the magnificence of this season. Lord, we celebrate it in that we're being set free because of what Christ has done, and we know that year by year, and as we mature in this, all the more we have a deepening love for the Savior. Oh, but Father, when, when you confront us with issues like forgiveness and love to the degree that you want to transform us, it makes us uncomfortable, Lord. Because there are places, there are places, Lord, where we've been very conditional in how we have offered love, whether to our spouse, our parents, our children, our neighbor, our coworker, our brother or sister in Christ here in the church. Father, there are places where we have replaced love with power and we have demanded our way. And we have not walked in the way of Jesus Christ. We have not walked in the way of service. And as you are confronting us with that, Lord, and you've reminded us of that, we struggle because we want to hang on to these things, but they are death, Lord. They're not the way in which you revealed yourself to the world. So I pray this morning that you give us a freedom from those things, that we might bring them to your cross, lay, leave them there, lay them there, and say, Lord, here's a place you've got to transform me some more because I'm not quite cutting it. Do a magnificent Work in us, I ask, Father, as you have identified to each of us what it is you're trying to speak to us about. May we each, Lord, freely say, yes, do that work. Make me more like Christ, that his love might flow through me even more. I ask it in his precious name.